Welcome to the Human Odyssey, the podcast about human-centered design. The way humans learn, behave, and perform is a science, and having a better understanding of this can help improve your business, your work, and your life. This program is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. So, let's get started on today's Human Odyssey. Welcome to a new episode of the Human Odyssey podcast. I am Rachel Stats. Uh, sorry we've been a little busy last month and we haven't been able to record a new episode. Uh, I am the producer now, and I'm also a human factor specialist here at Sofix Synergistic. Uh, I'm a recent graduate of, hum of Clemson University with human factors, if I can. And I am from... I've been to five of the seven different continents. I'm here with uh, Cynthia. Wow, I don't know if I can follow that, but excited to be here for the rebirth of our, our podcast. Um, I'm Cynthia Rando. I'm the CEO of Sofix Synergistics. I'm also a graduate of Clemson University through the master's, and then I went on to get a business degree for, from Northeastern, you know, my my Boston hometown. Couldn't, couldn't leave home without at least one degree from there. Um, <laughs> you know, fun fact for me, I used to get to travel a lot, but we, we welcomed the little daughter this year. So, so my world is, is definitely cooped up in her world, which has been really exciting. It helps teach you, um, to revisit what priorities really are in this life. Yeah. I'm also here with Jen. Hi, Jen Fogarty, Director of Applied Health and Performance here at Sofix Synergistics. Uh, I have a PhD in medical physiology, and I really represent uh, one aspect of the human, <laughs> a big one here that we'll talk about a little bit a little bit later. Um, a fun fact about me is that I work with rescuing golden retrievers, and uh, we've rescued many to find them loving homes, and we have also adopted many. It's called a foster fail, a good a good kind of failure. Yep. A very good uh, kind of failure. I'm also, and Lisa is also here with me. Hi, I'm Lisa, a human factor specialist. I have a master's in ergonomics and human factors from Loughborough University in the United Kingdom. Um, most of my experience has been in the healthcare industry. However, I've really enjoyed working in aerospace since joining SOFIC. A fun fact about me is when I was 21, I moved to Thailand on a whim. A very long win. <laughs> Got some. Uh, yeah. Uh, Josh. Hey everyone, I'm Josh Valdez. I am a graphic communication specialist here at Sofic. Um, I've been in this role since about May 2020. Before that, I was an intern with Sofic, so about two years now. Um, educational background, I uh, got a Bachelor of Arts in Communications from the University of Houston Clear Lake um, in May 2020. I just walked in a graduation ceremony last week, so that was um, interesting. COVID kind of postponed that a very long time. Um, and a fun fact about me, um, I've been really into comics lately, revisiting a lot of stuff I used to read as a kid and just catching up on new stuff, and it's been fun. <laughs> yep. Yep. Hi, everyone. I'm Raquel Garcia. I'm one of the human factor specialists, and my education background I got my Master's of Science in Applied Cognitive Psychology with a specialization in human factors from the University of Houston in Clear Lake back in 2019. And a fun fact about me is that 
when I, I like to collect magnets from the places that I travel to. That is when I used to travel more because like Cynthia, I also welcomed a little baby, but a boy. <laughs> Crazy that for such a small company, we welcomed two babies in this past year. Uh, but that's what I like to do. Oh. <clears throat> yep. And last but certainly not least is Brittany. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany Walton. I'm the Strategic Operations Lead here at SOFIC, and my degree is actually in chemical engineering, um, but I've worked primarily in the aerospace industry since college. I'm actually located um, physically in Huntsville, Alabama, which is otherwise known as Rocket City, um, so aerospace is a really um, big industry here. Um, and then a fun fact about me um, is I have a five-year-old um, with four legs. Her name is Lady, and she's a golden doodle. Um, she's basically a teddy bear, both in how she acts um, and how she looks. Yeah, it's great that everyone can introduce themselves here. Uh, let's start off the podcast by explaining a little bit about SOFIC and what is SOFIC in general? So SOFIC was a long time coming. I I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. I, I've, I sort of had an abnormal childhood where <laughs> my, my dad had started a company as well as being full-time teachers. So our house was always chaos 24-7 and and my first words weren't mom or dad. It was North Shore Tours, my dad's company name, because that's what I heard growing up. But I knew from a from a very young age that that I wanted to start a company and and be be part of the entrepreneurial community. It was just a matter of what. And so, after a long long tenure at NASA and you know getting a good feel for industry and innovation and the needs that have gone un unmet in, in the community. Um, it, it, it sort of opened the doors to, to SOFIC. And so SOFIC is a company that, that focuses on human-centered design, um, but more than the services that we provided, we wanted to have a strong company brand that spoke to the type of company that we we are to our clients and also our, our loyal followers. And Jen and, and myself spent a considerable amount of time you know, working on the branding to make sure that it was a strong, a strong, solid match to to who who we wanted to represent ourselves in in industry. And so, uh, SOFIC is wise and synergistic is synergy or partnership. But what that translated to us is much more in line with the trusted partner because that that's how we do our work. We are very collaborative. We we work seamlessly between many different types of companies and we we see ourselves as an extension of our partners, not not just a fly-by-night consulting firm. Uh, is there anything that you would describe like makes uh, Sofic differently uh, different for like different industries or anything like that? So I think we're truly an industry agnostic company. We have something for everyone. And, and SOFIC is, is mainly divided into two houses, um, the human factors side of human centered design, as well as applied health. And, and these two perspectives work seamlessly to provide that 360 degree approach to human centered design. And so I think Jen has some some good words to add from the applied health perspective that is not always understood from from the connection with human factors and human centered design. Sure. Yeah. And thanks for the opportunity to kind of expand on that with with human centered design being such an umbrella term. There's a, a lot to unpack there and, and kind of help define it for folks and how we implement it. So 
uh, Cynthia, as you mentioned, you know, your, your background and kind of the founding of the company and the expertise is really rooted in the discipline of human factors, which actually is very broad. I mean, I think it's really underestimated all the things it touches. But my area of expertise, when you think about complementary, was understanding how the human changes over time. So often you're getting a snapshot when you're when you're interacting with a person, how they are even that day, but then how do they inter- interact with the device or the interface or whatever it is and trying to gauge, you know, is that appropriate? How could it be altered so the performance is better, easier, or safer? So when it comes to my background and applying it in, in the concept of applied health and performance was the marriage of aerospace and medicine, where we were trying to implement and still do <laughs> medical care and maintaining performance in kind of one of the most extreme and austere environments, one that is completely manufactured by humans. Um, so if you don't bring it and if you don't make it, the odds of it being there and helping someone be successful are slim and mostly none. So that that forethought of how is the human going to interact in this environment with all these tools, devices, processes, and how are they changing over time? But you know, when we've talked about it, and as as we like conceived, and you conceived the company, and we talked about what it represented and how it's been evolving over time as the different industries, it's really shown how being integrated. And you mentioned trusted partner because you can't you can't do it from the outside. You know, this isn't trying to patch something to make it work. It's really sitting with the developers and the visionaries of saying, what are you trying to achieve? And if you decompose it into its parts of what are you manufacturing versus who's going to use it or or even who's going to repair it and who's going to benefit, you know, you have to break out, well, what are their capabilities? And sometimes when you talk about in the case of healthcare, that person's capabilities could be changing over time particularly in a disease state like degrading. So how do you account for that with your device? Or how do you propose to enable the person so regardless of their capability, it's still usable by them and beneficial to them? So I think, you know, we struggled for a little while to represent that. And one of the best ideas the team came up with was using the yin-yang, not a Venn diagram, because we're not mutually exclusive, but not we're not 100% the same. But in, as you mentioned, the 360-degree view, where we compose the whole process. Um, And it's just a matter of how we define it for any given customer and how we break it down into parts that are not only achievable, um, but transparent. So the decision-making can be informed. Yeah, you mentioned previously um, that we're um, industry agnostic, but uh, we've had different industries we talked about. Uh, Brittany, do you wanna talk about like the different industries that we previously served? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as Cynthia mentioned, um, one of the things we like to say here at SOFIC is that human-centered design is really industry agnostic. Um, and so what what does that really mean? Um, you know, basically any product or service that involves a human user, um, our human-centered design approach um, really brings value to whatever that industry is by focusing on the needs and the interactions and the effects um, that may occur to the user, regardless of the industry. Um, so the sky is really not the limit to our client base. Um, we've been really privileged to work um, some really exciting things in the aerospace industry. Um, we also have clients in the medical and medical device industry um, helping guide them through you know, the regulatory process. And we also have clients in the legal field um, when things unfortunately do go wrong with um, products or services by providing expert witness um, services there. So the benefits of human-centered design are really wherever humans are, regardless of the industry. Um, and our, our services become tailored based on what um, that specific company um, requires. 
That's really cool. Uh, let's go over the name of the podcast, The Human Odyssey. It's a little unique. Uh, what do you think about that, Cynthia? So, you know, the podcast was was something we were all really excited about, and we wanted to, you know, make it fun for all of our listeners to um, but beyond fun, more more to help bring this home and make it tangible for for people who don't necessarily live and breathe human-centered design, human factors work on a day-to-day basis. Because what we do and, you know, the impacts of what we do is pervasive and it touches all aspects of everyday life. So, you know, the goal for this podcast was to sort of achieve a sampling of lots of different topics that that hit home with folks on many different levels to help people see where good good design and not so good design can have positive and and equally negative effects on everything you do throughout your day and and design is a loose term because design can mean a lot of different things. It can mean an actual tangible product. It can mean the layout of, of different spaces or working environments that you have to work for, work within, you know, thinking manufacturing or things that are, are very complex from, you know, product, you know, order to, to delivery execution. And so even above that is also how humans communicate with each other. And so there's, there's just a lot, as Jen mentioned, to unpack in this field. And we, we thought that it might do some, some good. Yeah. I know every time I go and say what my job is, like at the doctor's office, they always ask me, what's that? And I'm just like, you should know it's in everywhere. Um, like, uh, Sofic has their uh, different blogs on their website, which you guys can go check out. Uh, when bad designs happen to good people, uh, Raquel, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, that and what it is? Awesome. So yeah, so we have a little section in our website that call- that's called oh, "When Bad Design Happens to Good People," which was started by our own CEO, um, and it was just a way to point out, um, without necessarily calling out companies how certain products or technologies are bad designs in the sense that they don't act them as we expect them to whether it be a sign or a physical product the instead of so we when we interact with them they're not um, exactly acting the way that they're supposed to and sometimes instead of understanding what caused the errors and fix what's wrong with it we immediately blame ourselves the user we say oh i must have not read the instructions I must have misstepped up, uh, misplaced a button or something. And it's really almost by default, we assume that the user should have taken or not taken a certain action, but we ignore whether there was a possible, this possible action was even reasonable or not, given the circumstances that they had when they were interacting with the device. Um, so with our, um, when we point out when bad designs happen to good people, we realize that the user, the person, is actually always going to be the last link in this chain of events that led to them interacting with this bad design. And when we peel back the layers, we find out that most of the time the product was developed in a way where safety or usability to the user um, now depended on the user on performing unrealistic or unattainable expectations from the user. And so preventing bad design, it really all depends on what we do during the design process or what we don't do that can lead to these instances. 
So, you know, Raquel, that's a good intro. And, you know, I'll just expand upon it more for those that may be in a seat of producing, you know, company products or things that people might buy or have to interact with. It's it's so much more than the product itself. It's how you leave people feeling or the end outcome. And, and that's sort of what dovetailed into when bad designs happen to good people. In a lot of cases, you only get one chance to have a successful product or service. And if you don't pay attention to these elements, you you already start yourself off at a deficit, you know, from a from a market standpoint. And so, you know, beyond the safety of individuals, you also have to think of it from from a business perspective. You know, these 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 factors and these um, processes and principles help drive successful businesses as well as successful products. Yeah, that's right. Um, and when you think about something simple as food scented uh, hand sanitizer, uh, what the user wanted was something to co uh, cover over the chemicals in the smell, the chemical smell in the hand sanitizer. But that doesn't mean the user ne necessarily needs that because uh, children might mistake that as food because it smells like food and that could be dangerous to them. Uh, but that's just like a smaller, smaller example of things that happen in everyday life. Yeah, um, another example is, so bad designs aren't just limited to physical products. Um, another example is graphic designs and signs and um, t-shirts. So like one example that comes up a lot is the store that had a sale going on and they have two signs um, with the say sale on them. But the way that it was broken up is S-A on the top row, L-E on the bottom. Well, when you put two of these next together, it doesn't look like it says sale. It looks like it says Sasalili, which doesn't make sense. Um, <laughs> so that's an example. Uh, there's also like t-shirts. Um, one popular one that we've seen, um, it's supposed to say, don't worry, be happy. Well, they split up the design. So it says, the top says don't, and the bottom says worry, and that follows the border. Well, right in the middle is be happy. When you read it top to bottom, it says, don't be happy, worry, which isn't really good advice for anyone. <laughs> um, but, but I think it picks up on a, a fundamental human point, you know, when we think about our behavior and taking that into consideration for design for a simple, something as simple as a sign, it's how we read and taking advantage of that natural process to make sure the design matches how we're going to approach something and our expectations with that interaction of that thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, Cynthia, going off of that point, you have to also think of cultural interests because not everyone reads the same way, uh, like people in Eastern, uh, well, like Japan read uh, the opposite of what we, what we do left to right. So that's also important to know your audience as well, as, as what you would say. <laughs> Absolutely. And then what, is, what does that also say? That not all design is created equal depending on who and where you are designing for and for and to. Yeah, great point. Yeah, completely agree. Um, Brittany, do you have an, uh, you said um, you had a good example as well? Yeah, um, I have an example that actually comes from my personal experience. Um, so that example of bad design um, was actually at a conference um, that we went to earlier this fall um, that was located at this really lovely hotel 
Um, but what was interesting or frustrating rather was the elevator at the hotel had some nuances with the configuration. Um, so there were two button panels once you entered the um, elevator, both on the left side and the right side of the elevator interior. Um, and as a security measure, um, the hotel guest had to scan their room key before the elevator would um, ascend to the correct floor. Um, so, you know, we appreciate the sentiment behind the security measure. However, the room key scanner was only on the left panel. So, you know, time and time again, when I would enter um, the elevator, you know, I um, realized, you know, that that was the case after a couple of times, um, but it led to confusion and frustration almost every time that I was in the elevator with someone that entered and stood on the right side um, because they couldn't figure out where to scan their key card. Um, so it's really interesting how frequently that design comes up in day-to-day -day life. Um, and it's not done intentionally, right? But we've got to understand um, the human behavior um, to ensure that designs um, really meet the needs um, of the users. So yeah. like, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, well, I, I was actually with Brittany and in several other hotels that have adopted that. And what the total miss was in their zeal to have a security requirement when they did that, you know, and that's a check the box, we did it, but they didn't do it in a way, they did it in a way where they cut their effectiveness by 50%. Even though you have two panels, one is really only functional, right? If you can't scan your card, you can't, the button pressing doesn't work. So what, the right-hand panel was useless. And then when you get in initially, like after check-in, any, well, check-in, but you, your hands are full of stuff. Right, so you're all jammed up. It, 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 you know. Then, if you've been in the hotel for for a while, you have mercy on the people getting in, and you help them. Like, so. but, it, but it was something to to think about. Um, just again, over and over, as an example, it was like we totally take for granted that fixing one problem, we caused a completely different one. But no one has stepped back and evaluated it until you start complaining at the front desk and. You know, at that point, they're kind of shrugging their shoulders like, well, thank you very much for the feedback. I guarantee if we go back to that hotel, I'm pretty sure the elevator, you know, keyboards are not going to be very different. And that's actually a really critical point, you know, especially when hindsight is 2020 in these events and you, you have the benefit of going through something. But it also brings to light what companies should do when they change something or, in, you know, institution or, or integrate something, you know, into a design. And that's test, test, test to understand the outcome. And to Jen's point, did you solve the problem and in making sure you didn't create something new? And there's a lot of examples in current day with really big catastrophic accidents where this was the case where, you know, somebody, you know, within the decision chain felt that it was such an innocuous change that it wouldn't have um, a, a huge, huge impact and sorely they were wrong in what was missed. They, they didn't test to, to ensure that they understood all aspects, not only of the problem they were solving, but also of the solution that they were offering. Yeah, I think that does go into the keel effect where people are fixated on the problem and the problem in its own singularity versus the uh, the expanding ramifications of you knock over one domino, is the entire stack going to go? Uh, yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, Lisa, you also had an example? Yeah, treadmills are an example of when you can have bad design that um, has safety implications, particularly when a safety key is the only mitigation that's used for preventing children from ac accessing the equipment without supervision. So a safety key is generally thought of as something you would attach to yourself. So if you fell off the device while using it, um, the machine would stop. But it's also been used as a preventative to 
prevent children from using it and harming themselves. And some of the expectation there is that you would remove the key after you use the device and keep it in a secure and hidden place. However, the average user isn't necessarily going to use the device in this way. I think if it were me, I would think that I might lose the key and then I wouldn't be able to use the treadmill at all. So, you know, when you have that potential for harm there, you really need to have more than one mitigation to prevent harm with children and this kind of device. You bring up, you know, another interesting aspect of design is, you know, you you think you're solving a safety issue, but inevitably you're making it much harder for the user to use it for its intended function, right? So those are those those two variables are at conflict with each other when we're trying to mitigate safety risks. And so when we think about these things, you you really have to pay attention to how can you integrate this seamlessly within the design so you don't impact its form and function, but you achieve the the right safety um, milestone, for example. Yeah, that's to me, this is a prime example of where it was added on later, you know, to your the, the word integration, it wasn't. Right. It was they failed to walk through the process. You know, when you do that concept of operations, how especially in the home. And that was a big paradigm change, not necessarily. It was just the number of treadmills or exercise equipment that are now in the home and being used escalated during the pandemic because gyms were closed or people didn't feel safe going to gyms that might have been open. Um, and they were putting them into uh high traffic areas in addition like you, you don't have you know especially in open floor plan homes try finding a room that's <laughs> is lovely in one respect but it caused a whole different realization in another anyway it's just it, it's clear that it was something that was done kind of aftermarket um and uh, to be honest a lot of those keys have existed not for safety reasons of the treadmill function but health of the human so typically when someone wasn't feeling well, they're often designed as clips on that should go on your clothes. So if you lost pace or fell down, the treadmill shut off. This was an issue that was way outside that bounds in terms of um, children, minors getting into the room and starting the treadmill by themselves, right? So it, it, it was kind of, well, we know how to do this. We're just going to add that. Uh, but it really wasn't focusing on the holistic problem and it definitely wasn't integrated. So the point was, well, it was causing additional work for the the person who paid for it, who's there to use it, right? So that becomes an obstacle and it may be eliminated if you can do it. And two, it it really wasn't set up to to create the safety environment. And I think that was also missed that the key was not sufficient, even if present, because it it could be misused. <laughs> So it just represents, again, going back to trying to help people understand cost avoidance means investing in doing a holistic assessment up front and making choices about what you can and will do in the design phase and iterate and test to your point, Cynthia, like you have to get some feedback about what you think will work and does it actually work? Yeah, and I think the other thing that was embedded that's really critical in what you said that I just want to hammer on a little bit is environment of use. You've really got to understand the, you know, where do these products go and where are they being put into use and, and what are the challenges surrounding that environment that play into the end user's ability or inability to use it as intended. So again, foreseeable misuse. And again, misuse, I use the term lightly because it's not misuse. It's 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 how do I, I make this functional for my needs? And that's a reality of any product that goes into the home setting.
Yes, of course. And uh, where he and Center Design does live is before the product is made, going to Jen's point. Uh, so you can integrate it properly, but uh, there is times where the product was already made and you need to backtrack a little bit and like understand the ramifications of what does what do we need to do to this product to mitigate uh, risk. Absolutely, and I think it's important for companies to also understand your job doesn't end when you sell a product. You're you're not done from a, you know a, a responsibility to your customers and your company and your product your product. There's what we call market surveillance. You've got to understand now that you've successfully sold and made your billions. What's going on with people using it? Are there any issues or flags popping up? Or are there opportunities for you to have a whole new product based off of other things that your users are telling you? So again, not only safety, but it, you, you have business opportunity embedded. And so that this is where the value comes in is in really understanding how to capitalize on, on the full suite of um, principles, you know, in terms of human-centered design and really um managing a product's life cycle yeah earlier raquel was bringing up you know uh, while explaining when good design or bad design happens to good people uh, <laughs> it's like invert the words and you, you have a whole new thought um but you know the idea is human error right and the idea that humans might be blamed for how they end up using the device or engaging in the process because they're trying to make it work for them and it results in a bad outcome. And we've started changing kind of the way we talk about that because in in most cases, it's a forced error, you know, that it isn't the human either being ignorant or choosing, it's they needed to get X done and using Y, they had to make Y work. And when it ends up in a bad outcome, that's why I mean, Brittany was talking about legal cases earlier too. like people are going to go head to head to um, assign blame. And I was reading an article in The Atlantic not too long ago about 94% plus of traffic accidents are attributed to human error. Um, uh, you know, and people are very skeptical about that as they should be because it's a complex environment. There could be many factors involved. So, you know, but the the challenge becomes they range a continuum from a nuisance, like it's annoying and in the marketplace, the 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 competitors who are not annoying will win out. <laughs> you know, if you're if, if you can get your job done with not, not being a nuisance or being added value, you're going to be way more successful. And word of mouth will just you know light a fire. This when things go viral, um, but it can be as serious as fatalities, and that's the most serious consequence that anyone could have. We understand losing money, but you, losing human life, you know, it cannot be assigned a value. It can be in the judicial system, but that doesn't really represent the loss of that life and to all the people around the loss of life. So, you know, if if you can get ahead of it and some of it is, you know, some not very, you know, detailed analysis. So it, it's important to engage and invest early and often. Yeah, right. that's an excellent oh. point. <laughs> it's very cheap in the beginning, very expensive if you end up in the court system. And, you know, I, I do this pretty regularly. But another important point that, that Jenna was touching on that I don't want to leave just yet is the concept of risk. And we're going to have several follow-up podcasts that deal with a lot of the, the pieces that we've sort of laid the foundation in this discussion about. But Risk is subjective. Not everybody understands and internalizes risk as we think they should. And so this this in and of itself is a is a huge topic and runs the gamut from, you know, understanding 
you know, when I put myself at risk or the consequences of me doing that workaround are often not understood uh, by people. And it's wrong for companies to place that um, responsibility on end users because of that mismatch in how we understand and internalize risk. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, going to like, we can talk, Raquel has some recent information about uh, recalls and the hood accidents in uh, automobiles going from Jen's point with uh, road safety. Yeah, and also going with uh, Cynthia's point about market surveillance, where Honda, there was this undetected problem where air, air was entering a gap between the hood and the grill, which when the car was in motion, it could potentially cause the hood to open while the vehicle was in motion. And so Honda had been investigating the issue since July of 2016, and they issued a notice that allowed uh, manufacturers and dealers to know how to repair the recurring problem. And thankfully, this uh, notice was pointed out before any major injuries occurred, or any injuries at all, actually, through the websites that I've read. And so they fixed the problem by allowing the car owners to go to the dealership and have their hood replaced free of charge. And then if the owners had already taken the steps ahead to go repair it themselves, Honda was offering a reimbursement. And so this means that Honda really paid attention to their customers. They paid attention to their clients and they took the preventative measures of addressing the problem before any serious injury could occur. And they were doing what we had pointed out. They were uh, surveilling the market, figuring out what kind of problems or issues were their users having post-release. During testing, everything seemed fine. It was clearly something that maybe they we were not sure whether it was it went undetected for whatever reason. But Honda took the preventative steps to not blame the user and blame. Ex they took the measures uh, of what the people wanted to see, which was, of course, a free refund, a, a refund or having it repaired free of charge because no one likes to pay <laughs> for their car damage. And so knowing that it was taken care of certainly, I would assume, gain the trust back from their uh, customers. So, you know, good success story, but it also gains them one other opportunity, right, to help improve their methods of testing and investigational product release, you know, whatever their process and procedure is. It, it obviously didn't, didn't effectively cover all angles, right? And so now they have the opportunity to learn from the customers exactly how it happened to recreate processes and procedures to help aid these checks and balances for future automobiles so that they don't ever have to experience this again. So again, opportunity, opportunity, opportunity equals what? Money. Yeah, these are really great um, knowledge about like um, products and how the, these bad designs can be beneficial to companies. You just got to watch for them and not blame the user, of course. Um, it, does anyone have any closing statements? Well, I think, you know, we we touched on a multitude of different aspects of, of human-centered design that, that play into helping prevent risk, increase safety, and also, you know, help you optimize your bottom line, right? But you know, I'm looking forward to the podcast to come where we're able to tackle a lot of these subjects individually and more in depth with the different team members. But, 
you know, it's, 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 it's a huge topic area that I think no one podcast can cover. And I think that's important for companies to understand there's a huge amount of value across the company itself, not only the products and the people um, in terms of institutionalized or, or just reaching out to getting some help with human centered design. Yeah, that's a great message. And I would like to thank the Suffolk team for joining us and giving uh, us knowledge about uh, designs and who they are as people. Uh, thank you for listening to the Human Odyssey podcast. Check out our social media fa- platforms for more human-centered content. And join us for the next episode. Bye. Bye. The Human Odyssey is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. Find out more at sophicsynergistics.com. Get smart. Get Sophic smart. Get Sophic smart.